I'm Susie Wiseman, and this is Jacobin Radio. Norman Solomon is with us to discuss the findings of a recently released report he co-authored called Autopsy, the Democratic Party in Crisis. It examines the continuing crises within the Democratic Party with the aim of stimulating a nationwide discussion and a stimulus for action of the kind that challenges the corporate nature of the party, tied to Wall Street and the military-industrial complex, in order to have it return to being the party of working-class families. And we speak to Alyssa Quart, the author and guardian writer of the Inequality Outclass column. Alyssa recently took on the sexual harassment issue in a column called What's the Common Denominator Among Sexual Harassers? And the answer, too often, is money. Her take is that sexual harassment feeds on income inequality and power imbalance, and that ensures that too many women will continue to not come forward. A sickening prospect. All this and more on Jacobin Radio in just a moment. I'm Susie Wiseman, and welcome to Jacobin Radio. Very excited to have Norman Solomon with us. He is the co-founder and coordinator of RootsAction.org. He was also the coordinator of the Task Force for Autopsy, and that's what we're going to be talking about, and also a national coordinator for the Bernie Delegates Network. I should also say that Norman Solomon is a media critic and a longtime associate of the Watch Group Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. That's where he's got to be most infamous and famous at the same time. And he founded the Institute for Public Accuracy. He's authored a lot of books, and we're very glad that he's out there as a media watchdog and a political watchdog. And what we're going to talk about today is the recently released report that's called Autopsy, the Democratic Party in crisis, and it examines the continuing crises within the Democratic Party between the centrist, pro-corporate, neoliberal leadership in the DNC and the more radical populist base that you could say is exemplified in the candidacy of Sanders, but that is often also to his left. The report's findings show that the leadership is continuing to go after the elusive Republican voters over the Democratic base, and especially people of color, young people, working class voters overall, despite continual losses. So the report also says that this methodology will not turn the party around, nor will its defensiveness and denial. Finally, it aims to serve as a discussion paper and a stimulus for action. So Norman Solomon, with all of that, first, congratulations. And I should also say that the autopsy got a terrific article in The Nation as well by William Greider, who has quite a few good things to say about the Democratic Party and crisis and how it got to be that way. Norman Solomon, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Oh, thank you, Susie. And we have like this massive defeat, and this is in your results from the autopsy, that in the white working class, if you refer to a massive swing of white working class voters from Obama in 2012 to Trump in 2016, and that Trump got a greater percentage of this group than anyone since 1980. And you also say that there was a depressed turnout of black and Latino voters for Clinton compared to Obama. And now, should just follow that with Chuck Schumer's, you know, announced at the start of the campaign that they were going to go after voters in suburban Philadelphia, then that would turn out more voters for the Democratic Party than the ones that are lost. So let's go over all of that. Can you comment on the sort of direction of the Democratic Party and where it finds itself? Yeah, well, a couple of points that you made most recently there are ones that I think are good to tee off on. Okay. First, 
between Obama's re-election race in 2012 and Hillary Clinton's general election race last year, the Democratic Party ticket lost 5% of Latino vote. Obama got 71% of the Latino votes, and Hillary Clinton got only 66. That is stunning when you consider the fact that Hillary Clinton was running against an avowed xenophobe racist who was trashing Latino people, calling Mexicans rapists, and all the rest of it. How was it possible for the Democratic Party to lose that 5% from Latino voters, a percent that would have swung the election the other way mm. in the, what turned out to be the swing states? And the answer has to do with the approach that you alluded to, which put Democratic Party priorities, which are largely still there, on the so-called persuadable white, usually Republican voters, the Romney voters, who were told are so disgusted with Trump that they can be lured into voting for Democrats. And because resources are inevitably zero-sum, that means diverting resources away from the base the progressive base of the Democratic Party, the working class of all races, young people, and also we have the reality that this base is being dissed continually through the messaging as well as the resources. So people of color, the young, who have been in the past the most strong supporters of the Democratic Party, they're being not only taken for granted but given short shrift in terms of resources. And finally, I would say that the quote you alluded to from now the minority leader of the Senate, Chuck Schumer, right. really says a lot of it. Yeah. Uh, where he, at the time of the Democratic Convention last year, said explicitly that for every blue-collar voter that the Democratic ticket would lose in western Pennsylvania the ticket would pick up two so-called moderate suburban voters, i.e. white Republican voters, in the Philadelphia area. And he added, you can duplicate that in Wisconsin, in Ohio, and so forth. And that is exactly what went wrong with the campaign in terms of winning or losing. Well, I couldn't agree with you more on that. And Norman Solomon, I mean, it goes even deeper. And I want you to comment on the sort of contradiction that is there. And it's at several levels because Schumer said it perfectly. And so did Greider, by the way, in saying that the Democrats not only have stuck to this policy, which is to literally be blind and deaf to the misery that most Americans are living under and ignoring that for their corporate Wall Street and professional sort of base that they're more interested in, plus minorities, but that they have a condescending attitude as well to this whole discussion. From once said that the Republicans fear their base and the Democrats hate theirs. And it couldn't be more clear now in this pursuit of this policy, even after such tremendous losses. So I guess the real question is, why? Why are they adopting this strategy, especially given that the working class, if you want to define it somewhat narrowly, is that those not having college degrees still constitute 50% of the voting population? Well, the contradictions are rife. And as you say, they have to do with a lot more than just a tactical, strategic sort of how are we going to win this election. It goes to the vision of the party and the country for the future. Bernie Sanders said it very well in an interview with the New York Times Magazine, or oh, maybe six months ago. He said there are people in the Democratic Party 
who don't mind being on the Titanic as long as they have a first-class cabin. <laughs> Such and a great quote. In point of fact, there are a lot of people at the very top of the Democratic Party running the Democratic National Committee and the congressional leadership who have a dual-track approach. They believe that the traditional base of the party have a role in turning out and voting uh, for the Democrats. Mm-hmm. And then they believe that the donor class, Wall Street, the big banking interests, they have the role to steer the ship of the party to a significant degree. And, of course, poor six-figure checks in individually and millions of dollars each quarter coming from Wall Street and the big concentrations of capital, and that that essentially and appropriately, in the opinion of the Democratic Party elites, steers the party in a certain direction away from the hazards, as they see it, of progressive populism. Can I just ask you one question, and I know you'll go back to finish this point, but were you saying that they see the base as kind of fodder to get out the vote, to be the canvassers, but that the donors are the ones whose politics they pursue? Well, to a large degree. I mean, certainly I wouldn't want to conflate the Republican and Democratic parties in that the Republican Party is a wholly owned subsidiary of uh, Wall Street and the big banks, whereas the Democratic Party is largely owned by Wall Street and the big banks. So it's a matter of degree. I think there is a tacit belief in a division of labor, if you will, a division of roles, whereas the party at the top, the so-called leadership, has to make sure that the populism doesn't get out of control. It has to be constrained, whereas the major guidance and the parameters are provided by the elite big money interests. And when you think about it, the eight years of the Clinton presidency and now the eight years more recently of the Obama presidency, Mm -hmm. they were suffused of cabinet members who were from Wall Street, Goldman Sachs and other firms, President Obama appointed as Commerce Secretary a billionaire, Penny Pritzker, who had sponsored him essentially from the beginning of his political career, somebody who was an heiress who made a fortune or a further fortune uh, with subprime mortgages aimed at poor Latinos and African Americans. And this was sort of the milieu that infiltrated so much of the cabinet and the policy. So from that standpoint, and our autopsy says this quite specifically, The elite leadership of the National Democratic Party cannot bond with the base when it's afraid of the base. And it quite literally is. Just one other thing I'd add, Susie, before we move on to other aspects of this conversation. A few weeks ago, I went to a meeting at the Democratic National Committee Uh with Will Haler, who is the special advisor to the chairman of the committee, Tom Perez. And he met with me and Karen Bernal, who is the very strong progressive chair of the California Democratic Party's Progressive Caucus. And also one of the authors of this autopsy. Yes, that's right. And Karen and I and some other officers of the California Democratic Party Progressive Caucus sat for an hour and a half and talked to Will Haler about the concerns largely that are embodied in this autopsy report, which, by the way, everybody can access at democraticautopsy.org on the web. And it was very clear to us that, or to me, I should say, speaking for myself, that Will Haler was a progressive-minded person. He had worked not only for Keith Ellison, but before that for Paul Wellstone. And yet the Democratic National Committee is hunkered down as kind of a fortress. 
Mm -hmm. And it's almost impermeable in terms of being able to be accessed by the base. They're running the show. They're steering the ship of the Democratic Party state. And there's very little interest in what the base of the party really wants. And yet there was a Harvard-Harris poll released a few weeks ago that surveyed scientifically, as much as that can be, the registered Democrats in the United States and found that 52% said they believe the party needs to move farther left and that the current leadership of the party is not serving their interests. So this gets right back to a really important point that you've already made and that is part of the findings of autopsy. And that's that because the Democratic Party is prioritizing getting the support of finance and corporations, which is their money, they can't really put forward traditional Democratic politics before Clinton, let's say, before neoliberal politics, that was, you know, welfare state, pro-union, pro-education, and of course now pro-health care, but a health care that isn't a corporate health care or Obama-type care, although they're very wedded to that. So again, this is part of that same conundrum, and you've just stated, Norman Solomon, that Will Haler and people like him are caught up in this, as is almost everyone, because we live in a duopoly. So let's just go a little bit deeper what do you think, maybe you could make the point even stronger about how they intend, I mean, by the DNC to court those people who want the voters who want them to move to the left, but need the money from those who want them not to do that. And part of the contradiction is that the Bernie Sanders campaign showed last year that you can get large amounts of money from the base if you want to. And I think that is a crux because there's control over the party from the top by people who don't want to give up the control. Yeah. And they well, may dress it up as we think we can beat Republicans this way, but for sure they believe they can and must keep control that way. So if you open the gates to the political riffraff, I mean, it's more subtle than that, but you allow the populist surge to overwhelm the barricades, figuratively speaking, of the Democrat National Committee, then who knows what might happen. You might have a nominee for president who's a Democratic Socialist. All sorts of stuff could happen where class consciousness becomes key to the party's identity. Right now, there's been just a lot of nonsense put out by the party about how they identify with the victims of corporate capitalism, but they don't want to confront the victimizers. It doesn't make sense, as we say in the autopsy report, victims without victimizers lacks passion, it lacks realism. It's a fantasy world that we're receiving from the Nancy Pelosi's and the Chuck Schumer's and the Tom Perez's from the DNC, that somehow a political party can serve Wall Street and serve Main Street. And it's total nonsense. And this is why the autopsy is being put forward not only as an analysis, which is getting a lot of positive response, but also as an organizing tool. We need to use it to educate and agitate and organize around this country. And I'm very enthused that we've gotten such a strong response, including from Pacifica stations. As you mentioned, William Greider has the cover story in the current issue of The Nation talking about the autopsy. And we really need to stir this up because left to their own devices, the people running the Democratic Party from the top will keep running it the way they did. It's a bad way to defeat the right. 
and it's a bad way to move progressive policy forward. Let's move back just a second, because I want to get to all of that, including some of the ideas that the autopsy comes up with, how to break that stranglehold. But go back, because I think we need to dwell a little bit more. You mentioned Tom Perez. Now, he, when he was Labor Secretary, people thought of him as pro-Labor and a Latino and progressive. And then he was put in charge of the DNC, thought he could co-opt Keith Ellison, one of the very few Sanders supporters in Congress, and then put him there to shut him up. And that now, of course, we see shutting out any other representatives from that more left-wing base. And I want to go back to this sort of doubling down on their policy that you started to allude to, Norman, and maybe also talk about like how they see what happened in 2016. Do they just think that Hillary was a bad candidate and that somebody else could do it better? I think there has been a doubling down because it's about power. And if you will, the Clinton wing, and the Clinton wing is persisting with, you might say, Clintonism without the Clintons, per se. It's a view of how the party should be structured, financed, and pursued that is inherently corporate and big corporate. And so I think there is an assumption that the hammerlock on the party from those corporate interests needs to be maintained while a general slow reform coming from the base can be implemented. And, you know, some of those folks, I think, are no doubt quite sincere about it. But to be really blunt about it, despite his really good history that you allude to, Tom Perez was used Mm -hmm. to block the Sanders forces. Right. Because after the 2016 election results, the logical question was, how did the Democratic ticket lose? How could it possibly lose to Trump? And the logical exploration for answers would be up the avenue that would take you to Wall Street. And the Clinton campaign and Clinton herself, the entwinement that she had, the speech at the six-figure honoraria and so forth, she could not be a credible economic populist candidate because she was so entwined with the oligarchy. And Bernie was willing to use that word, oligarchy. So that was a very scary question, uh, and it was inherent in the response to the election from the base. And so that question needed to be changed. The subject had to be changed. One of the ways it was done was to start to talk about Russia, Russia, Russia. 24 hours after the election defeat, John Podesta and Robbie Mook, the other hierarchy people of the campaign, met at their national headquarters who were then in mourning for the Clinton loss in Brooklyn. And according to the book Shattered by two embedded journalists with some pizza and so forth, they decided that they were going to blame Clinton's defeat on Russia. And it was a way of changing the subject, because the subject of corporate power is absolutely antithetical to the status quo ownership, if you will, or hammerlock on the Democratic Party. So just to sort of sum up, Tom Perez is unfortunately in that role. He was used to fend off a strong challenge for the DNC chairpersonship from Keith Ellison, and he is maintaining that corporate control. We have coming up the last meeting of what the DNC calls its Unity Reform Commission, December 8th and 9th in D.C., and at that final meeting, they're going to make recommendations such as will or how much will there be superdelegates maintained, the anti-democratic anointed people who can vote at national conventions for the presidential nominee. This is an ongoing battle, and that's, again, why I urge people, you can sign up for updates, go to democraticautopsy.org, and also, wherever you are, please 
share the report and organize intently to say we're not going to take this lying down. And Susie, I should say that there are some folks, and I'm sure some of them are listening now, who figure, oh, what the heck, who cares about the Democratic Party? They're a lost cause. Well, there's no practical way, if you've got your feet on the ground, if you aren't engaging in magical thinking, there's no way to defeat the Republican majority next year. If you want to get rid of a Republican Speaker of the House, you want to get rid of the Republican majority in the Senate, there is no way in the world to do it without Democratic Party candidates. So let's get real. Let's stop the fantasy world of politics of third party in terms of federal level. And let's do what the right wing did to the Republican Party, which is to take it over for their ideological convictions. Let's, on our part, move ahead for a progressive overcoming of corporate interests within the Democratic Party. Well, you jumped ahead where I want to go, but I think that's exactly right. And I wanted to kind of go back to the, as you've said, Norman Solomon, the tone deafness of the party, and then the doubling down. And then, of course, I guess if we were going to write this as steps, then denial, then deflection, blame the Russians, blame anybody but the politics of the party itself. And even we got to see it in real time, and especially in those uncomfortable debates that the Clinton campaign did everything to try to avoid by having them you know, on Saturday nights or, or next to an important sporting event, but that when Bernie challenged Hillary Clinton from the left, she seemed at first taken aback, how dare he, and then she said that she was the progressive. And she yeah. did that without blinking an eye. And right. it seemed like they had the arrogance to think that they could own the rhetoric and not pay any attention to the substance. Well, that's right. Yeah, as as the autopsy says, they tried to hum the tune, but there was no way they could belt out a real convincing populist song. It never resonated authentically. Yeah, we have to thank Bernie. I wanted perhaps you to talk a little bit about what you saw in the Bernie Sanders campaign, and I thought it was a stroke of genius of him to use the Democratic Party to run against the Democratic Party, essentially, and by that, of course, the Democratic Party leadership. But, you know, and as I just alluded in the debates, they didn't give him the time of day. And afterwards, now we're seeing they're still doing more of the same. Your corrective on Tom Perez is exactly right. So how do you see that? And especially as someone who was, what, the chair of the Bernie delegates? Right, well, I coordinated the Bernie Delegates Network, which was independent of the Bernie campaign, but comprised most of the Bernie delegates to the national convention. Well, there's a lot of BS coming out in recent weeks from Hillary Clinton and her allies. She went around promoting her book and complaining quite bitterly on television and elsewhere. Bernie Sanders isn't even a Democrat. You know, if he's not going to be a Democrat, he should get out of our party and get out of our way which shows how these folks in charge of the Democratic Party at the top of the national apparatus, they're like 20, 30 years behind. As our autopsy points out, there are more independent voters, what we call in California decline to state, than there are registered Democrats. 30% of the country is registered Democrats who are voters, and 40% are independents. So the effort to say that somehow you're delegitimate if you're not a registered Democrat, is preposterous. We need to move this country forward with substance, not the rhetoric. And, Susie, I think you're quite right. The effort, the belief, it's sort of a marketing Madison Avenue conceit, Mm -hmm. that if you mouth the words and uh, some uh, buzz phrases that that makes you authentic, 
it just doesn't fly. I mean, let's consider the fact there's a big insurance company that calls itself progressive. That doesn't tell you anything. Right. But I want to say, too, if let's take it back to Bill Clinton. What it was so shocking about his campaign is he really had the charisma to pull it off and say, I feel your pain. And he was talking about working class pain. And we're talking about a period just before the roaring economic boom of the 90s that was based on bubbles, of course, but that he was able to do that and then switch the party, move it in this sort of third direction, third way. We call it the Clinton Blairite way of the neoliberal campaign. And it's done dominated the party since that time, supporting the rich, supporting finance, and maybe it did take a kind of Bill Clinton-type candidate to pull it off. Obama pulled it off, too, but we see now you've got a challenge from within on... Yeah, I think you're making a key point, and it's like a shiny surface, and underneath it, there's dry rot. (laughs) In the eight years of the Obama presidency, sure, like Bill Clinton, he was good at getting himself reelected. But during those eight years under Obama, more than 1,000 Democratic seats were lost in state legislatures across this country. That was carnage. That was horrific for the Democratic Party. But blithely, like a narcissistic, politically speaking, Mr. Magoo, you had President Obama just sauntering along like things are going along just fine. Just sort of underscores from a political basis that the Republican leadership doesn't have a lock on narcissism. We're supposed to still adulate a Democratic president who presided over this colossal loss, not only of the House and Senate in Washington, D.C., but state capitals around the country. And it's not just happenstance. It's because the party adopted pro-corporate policies that alienated it from the working class, its traditional base. Clinton did it with stocking his cabinet, with all these Wall Street people, with pushing NAFTA, and so forth, these horrible corporate trade agreements. And Obama, of course, to the last, fighting for the TPP, putting his cabinet filled with these very wealthy individuals and operatives from Wall Street and the large banks, and not fighting for people whose houses were underwater. He came into this presidency with a crisis of so many people losing their homes. He bailed out Wall Street. He didn't bail out the homeowners. And then there's this corrosive degradation of Democratic Party strength across the country. And we're supposed to believe that that's just good leadership. It's really interesting because even from the Reagan administration, holdovers like Marty, oh, I forgot his name, the Harvard economist, came on during that housing crisis. And he said... Oh, Yes, thank you. And he said, we can staunch the housing crisis right now by revaluing all the homes to where they are in the market right now and then allowing every single person in the U.S., not just those whose loans are underwater, to refinance at 2 to 3%. And we'll end the housing crisis and we will spend less money than if we bail out everybody. And, and it is a bailout of a sort, but that was ignored. And as you said, it's no wonder that they began to lose. But I want to get back, because in, in the autopsy that you've been part of, Norman Solomon, you talk about it being possible, or I'd like to find out if you do think it's possible, to challenge this corporate nature of the party and disentangle it from Wall Street and the military-industrial complex and the other corporate interests so that it actually might match its rhetoric as the party for working families so that it isn't just empty. And aren't there structural reasons that that may not be the case? Well, like anything worthwhile politically, it's an uphill climb. I think Bernie perceived quite correctly that 
there was a huge opening that the Democratic Party, to a large extent, is a hollow shell, and that we need to struggle to change what's inside it, even though the superstructure is very powerful and repressive. Right now, we have, by default, people who don't know what to make of genuine progressive populism holding on for dear life. I think that's essentially not a bad summary of the Hillary Clinton campaign. She felt mm-hmm. blindsided. It just it reminds me, literally and metaphorically, of when we were inside the Democratic National Convention and we had uh, Leon Panetta, the former CIA director <laughs> and defense secretary, giving a speech, and we were chanting, hundreds and hundreds of delegates chanting, no more war. And he was absolutely stunned. If you Google it and look at him on YouTube, you see Panetta. It's as though he had pulled up an easy chair in his family's living room uh, (laughs) and assumed everybody was going to just fawn all over him. And then he's getting these chants, no more war. And the same with General Allen the next night, the uh, final night of the convention. It's because there's such a disconnect. And I would give that parallel, whether it's on economic policy or militarism. You have the top of the party that has moved rightward. You have the base of the party that's moved leftward. Call that a contradiction or a split or whatever you want. It is a basis for people to organize effectively to change the direction of the party. Well, let's just end on this last point, too, and that is that it seems to be that you're saying that if you see our political landscape is essentially four parties in two, where you have right-wing populists and corporatists, I guess, in the Republican Party, and then you have neoliberal Democrats and left social Democrats and to the left of that in the Democratic Party— Is it possible, and you're saying, that for the Sanders party to replace the Clinton-Obama party, and why are we left with just this vehicle rather than, as you said, a third party? Well, I've met with people in Berlin who are in the Bundestag there. They're with the Linke, the Mm -hmm. left party. They're with the Green Party. They got a parliamentary system. They win 8 10%. They are players. They have votes in the parliament. We just don't have that system here, and that's why I call the third-party national fantasy, such as Green Party, it's trying to build a roof without a foundation, and it's a different structure. So we should just be real about what we're dealing with and organize effectively. I think third-party and certainly independent municipal races are bearing fruit, as in Richmond, California. These are radicals. These are progressives. They have their roots with community organizing, and it's wonderful what they've done in the city of Richmond, just next to San Francisco. And that's because people in a non-sectarian way have been able to organize. There's no party names on the ballot. Many of those folks are Green Party people. More power to them because it's more power to us. When you get to state legislature, when you get to statewide governor-type races, and you get to U.S. Senate and House and president, it plays into the hands of the right wing and the corporatists to have real progressives march out of the Democratic Party. There's a great strategic nostrum uh, concept that when you're in a struggle with an adversary, don't do what you most want to do. Do what your adversary least wants you to do. (laughs) And I think what our adversaries, corporate militarists, least want us to do is to fight like hell and take over the Democratic Party as progressives with a progressive vision 
of democratic socialism for the future. We're going to have to leave it there. I want to thank you so much and encourage everyone to go look for the autopsy, the Democratic Party in crisis. It's at democraticautopsy.org. Norman Solomon is the co-founder and coordinator of Roots Action and also coordinator of the task force for this autopsy. I encourage all of you to read it. Norman Solomon, thank you very much for joining us on Jacobin Radio. Hey, thank you, Susie. This is Jacobin Radio, and I'm Susie Wiseman. And very pleased to have Alyssa Quart with me here for the very first time. She's the author of three nonfiction books, Branded, Hothouse Kids, and Republic of Outsiders, The Power of Amateurs. She's also editor-in-chief of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, and she has a great article, which I think is a necessary corrective to the nearly exclusive attention on powerful celebrities and politicians who've harassed and abused women. This article appears in The Guardian, and it's called Inequality Outclassed, and Alyssa asks in it what the common denominator is among sexual harassers, and she answers, of course, that too often it's money. So I've decided to bring her on today, and I'm really pleased that she's here so that we can go beneath the surface on this, as Alyssa calls it, the daily deluge of tales of lechery and trauma, and look at how much income inequality has to do with this. And of course, Alyssa in her article says, the greater the imbalance, the more opportunity there is for abuse. Well, with all of that, Alyssa Court, welcome to Jacobin Radio. Thank you so much, Susie. I'm I'm really pleased to be here. I'm really pleased to have you, too. And, of course, if you look at the op-ed every day and the letters, and it's more and more and more on what began with Harvey Weinstein's being outed as a, let's call it a, a repeat offender of not just groping, but actual sexual assault, using and abusing his power. But now it's moved into politics. It's also moved into religion. We have, especially in the way that it's become partisan, you have Roy Moore, the judge who goes after teenagers, or did, on the Republican side, now up for election in Alabama, a deeply red state, and Al Franken, who was one of the possible contenders for the presidential election in 2020 from Minnesota, former comedian, who, in fact, did something that we can all agree was totally gross and outrageous. And he's being asked to resign in some places, and he's issuing apologies. So maybe we should just start with that. I guess the point would be is, let's start at the top in the famous celebrity part and politician part and then move into the economic one. Okay. Yeah, it's been a fascinating time. I mean, it it does have this feeling of like we're burning it all down. The kind of indignities, everything from harassment to assault that women have had to accept in the workplace and outside the workplace for that matter, for men is being called into question and people are being called out right and left, literally. So that's been fascinating to watch with the most famous cases being Harvey Weinstein or Mark Halperin, the journalist, pundit. Kevin Spacey. Kevin Spacey. I personally do think that there's a distinction, there's a continuum where Al Franken might be at the bottom of the problematic, although obviously <laughs> still gross and frat boyish, and then, you know, onwards up 
to or down to assault right. um, among these celebrity offenders. But I think that's a whole other conversation. I do think we're going to need to start making lots of different definitions within the category of harassment that we're not making right now. So, But don't you are, are, think in one way that this Me Too moment that happened immediately after Harvey Weinstein has just kind of opened the floodgates? And everybody's talking about it everywhere. The Nation even had an article, I think, from someone saying that it's also hit the Islamic world. And it's so much the norm for women to suffer sexual abuse at work or in any relationships of power that this has been a moment to come out. It's been uncomfortable for women to come out with their stories. And a lot of women say, why is it Me Too instead of them coming out and explaining what they've done? But on the other mm-hmm. hand, do you, do you see this as a watershed or do you think that if we don't challenge the economic imbalance that this will just go away after a while? Well, I do think it's a watershed, but the question is for who? I mean, is it going to be a watershed for celebrities down to a creative class workers? Or is it going to go all the way down to people who are contingent workers, meaning they have temporary jobs, people who work part-time, tipped labor, where they get a very small amount per hour, and then they're reliant on tips for the rest. And then so they have to withstand all kinds of harassment to get their tips. So these are the people I'm personally most worried about, the people who are the farm workers, something like 80% of female farm workers report, some huge number report being sexually harassed, 80% of waitresses report sexually harassment, and 88% of female construction workers. So um, It's rampant in prisons, too, and women are filling prisons more and more. Prisons, I just brought it in because it is the example where women are literally enslaved in a way, or incarcerated, and can't get out of the way, with huge consequences if they try to fight back. But could you talk a little bit, because in your article in The Guardian, you really go through it, and I think this tallies very well with your work on the hardship report project, that the consequences for women, they're always terrible consequences, the trauma inflicted, but the economic consequences. Can you go into just a little bit about what yeah, that is? Yeah, so I just started thinking about it right away because it was personal. I had been a freelance writer when I was young, and I had very frequently encountered the 90s and the knots, kind of much less pervasive or severe. That's what legally harassment has to be to be legally problematic, pervasive, or severe, but just kind of comments. I had editors who at an interview who asked me to get up and turn around and then (laughs) remarked nice legs. And at that point, I was utterly dependent on these jobs that were short-term. They were writing, short-term editing jobs, and I was very young, and I could barely pay my rent. And I write about that a little in the piece. And I knew I couldn't complain. I'd have to go back to those same magazines and those same editors for work, even after they would say these things. One case, somebody sort of threatened me on the phone even um, Mm. because I didn't want to go out with him. And he was an editor, but I had to go back and get an assignment. So these are the kinds of relationships I start to think about. And in some ways, what's interesting to me is a lot of the younger actresses that Harvey Weinstein had hit on initially. Some of them were kind of Hollywood swans, like the Gwyneth Paltrow. There were a lot of people who were just ascendant or were assistants. So they were still contingent in a sense, like they were working from film to film. So it wasn't completely different from the precarious worker who is a waitress and has three different gigs, three different jobs, waitressing in three different places or a hotel housekeeper who works short term months a month or something. I mean, they're just on a higher scale. So that's part of why I started to think about this. And it led me to talk to people who worked for, who I guess you would call lower middle class to middle class who worked office jobs, one made in the mid-20,000s, the other made 40000 and up 
until upper 50,000s by the end of her time working for this boss who had been terribly harassed by their boss. And it got me thinking, like, where are these women's stories? Right. They had to keep working. They worked for five years, eight years, ten years for this guy who would make passes at them and tell them that he could have better please them more than their partners and slap their butt once, you know, all this stuff. So, but they felt they had no option. So they're the people I'm worried about, not necessarily Angelina Jolie, right? Right, but it is the underside of the class war in a sense, isn't it, that you Mm -hmm. have, and you have especially, because I'm glad you brought this out, Alyssa Court, that we now have so much of what we're calling the precariat, people in contingent labor, zero hours as they call it in Britain, where really you go from job to job and living right at the brink of catastrophe, right? And even going up, as you say, others who can earn a little more, maybe could afford to turn down one job, but certainly couldn't turn down very many. So it means that we're even more vulnerable. And I wondered, because you've written about it in your article, do you think that it's an economic abuse, but also it's a cultural one that's so longstanding? Do you think that it makes much difference if women are unionized, for example? I would like to think it did, but if you think about human resources departments and checks and balances that have long been in place in less precarious work situations, people say, oh, it's just maybe it slows people down a little bit when they know they're going to have to tell somebody else that they had said these things to this worker. But a lot of human resources you know, offices are pretty toothless when it comes to punishing the boss who is sexually harassing their employees. So I'd like to think greater unionization. I think it would help a lot of other things. I couldn't promise it would help with this. Right. Um, I mean, what I think what needs to happen is where we really start to see these things as power imbalances, mm. where gender and income and social class are interconnected. I mean, that women still earn 83% of what men do means that even if you aren't precarious, you probably feel like you have to work to keep your job because you've been saving less than your male counterparts. So I think we have to think about harassment in that light as well as just, oh, these guys are creeps. This is this age-old, some kind of biological imperative run amok. I think we have to think, well, if we were earning exactly equivalent, we would have saved more and we, you know, we could have more mobility. Right. That's absolutely true. And I think you're right to bring out the disparity in income, even though I'm older than you. And I remember when it was 64 cents on the dollar, and I think maybe even less than that. So there's been progress in some ways. And another thing that I noted, and I've been thinking about this a lot, I teach at college and For more than a decade, universities, not just in the United States, but worldwide, have had far more women than men enrolling and graduating. And and that's also filtered up into graduate schools and professional schools. And yet that has certainly opened up the workplace for more qualified women, but it hasn't really tilted the power balance. Now, I'm not arguing in favor of just the sort of corporate glass ceiling being broken open, but it does seem that at this moment of reckoning, this is one way that the swamp gets drained quickly because people will be forced to retire, quit, retreat, whatever, take time off. And I just wonder if you think that this will be an opening for women to oh, make. Oh, God, I love that. I hadn't <laughs> thought of it that way. That's brilliant. That's amazing. I was going to like, go home and write another op-ed about this. Oh, but, please um, do. <laughs> based on your, the musings of Susie. But, um, but I, mean, I have to say, just again, looking at all the monetary aspect, you have more women in grad school, you have more college debt, and you have more grad school debt. And yeah. if the 
Republicans tax so-called reform, oh. you're, you're going to have even more debt for graduate students unless they're independently wealthy. So <laughs> that's something to think about. And also, gosh, I've thought a lot about this because I've written also on the academy a lot. And yeah. yes, there are many more women working in the academy, but many of them are working adjunct jobs. So exactly. they're not necessarily the people getting tenure track jobs. So they're becoming part of the precariat. Then they're, they're also dependent on, again, older male professors for mentorship that could sort of perpetuate a lot of harassment as well. So, um, Absolutely yeah. true. I have to say one thing, too, because I'm actually lucky to be a tenured professor. And I was even chair for a while. And I noticed that when the men are in charge, they always use the secretaries to do everything. And I felt completely uncomfortable and hardly ever did, <laughs> you know, asking someone else to do work that I thought I could take on myself. And I think that does tend to be the case with women. I don't know if that's still true. And I think when I raise the question to you, it's like, unless we take on the system itself and the economic relationships, do you think that this will make a, much of a difference if we just take out abusive men and put in decent women? Oh, I'd love to think that it would. And I really do think that this has got to have some kind of shift. Even just, it's been 26 years since Anita Hill, and I think there's energy radiating out of that calamity <laughs> um, for many, many years through the 90s, right, that we lost sight of. There's take back the night. There's a lot of awareness in that right. period. So I think this can't help but bring it to the fore for, even if it's not permanent, it's going to change people's attitudes for at least a couple of years, I think. So that will have a positive effect. But yeah, I personally think that you need to have economic and other kind of deeper fixes to make this change. I'm speaking with Alyssa Quartz. She's the editor-in-chief of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project and the author of four books. And we're talking about, I guess, bouncing from a really great article that she wrote in The Guardian, I think on November 9th, called Inequality Outclassed, in which Alyssa asks, what is the common denominator among sexual harassers? And of course, too often money is the answer. I see this article as a kind of necessary corrective to the nearly exclusive attention on powerful celebrities and politicians and moving it into basic work relationships where men are almost exclusively the bosses and power, of course, allows them to abuse, and they do. So let's go back down, if we can, down the scale from the celebrities and politicians and the draining of the swamp, I guess, and talk a little bit about whether or not you think that this is going to have any effect in those terribly unequal relationships in the workplace, especially today where so many are in contingent labor. Yeah, I mean, I'm hoping for that. I mean, again, I feel like we've been hurt so many times by progress that a historian has called it like the historical two-step, which is two steps forward, one step back, and that's mm. been happening as far as I can remember, right? And also from the 1930s with progressivism, you know. So we've had a long history in America of things changing and then flipping back or flipping half back. So I'm expecting that. And I do think, okay, so 55 million workers roughly are freelance, so that's more than ever before. That's one in three in the U.S. workforce, so that is going to change how secure women feel they are. I had written another column like about a year ago on something I called the middle precariat, which was hmm. I thought we had to start thinking about this concept of the precariat, which was coined by the scholar Guy Standing to define people who are working 
really poorly paid temporary work, fly cooks and domestic labor, et cetera, and think about it in terms of paralegals and adjuncts and short-term substitute teachers and tutors and this like whole kind of world of this whole precarious class. Of, and you know, Uber drivers and Lyft drivers. And, you know, right, so it goes to almost every sector now. Yeah, but that there is this sort of bougie precariat, actually, like on the surface, they seem middle class, but they're not anymore. Barely making it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, I think, plays into this, you know? I do, too. And one thing I just, I want you to go deeper into this, and especially the research and the articles that you're doing on the precariat. But one thing that I find a lot is that people distrust the organized working class, the union, and see them as some sort of aristocracy because they've protected Mm -hmm. their good jobs. And talk about sort of this sea change in economic relationships. Workers have been demoted in agency Mm -hmm. in the sense that they aren't in the powerful unionized positions where they can challenge their work conditions and make them improve in the same easy way as before. But it doesn't mean that they've been fired from history in a way and they can still do it again. And I just wondered when you were doing your work on the precariat Mm -hmm. and precarious forms of labor, if you thought about any of those issues about how workers can somehow band together or in some ways challenge the conditions of their precarity. I I have actually, and I've written other articles. I mean, this is all actually from a book of mine that's coming out in June, so it's too long uh, in the future to plug, but it's called Squeezed, Why Our Families Can't Afford America. Let's hear a little bit. So that's what it's uh, kind of about, and I talked to people who were doing apps, co-op apps for domestic workers or child care providers who were also kind of not unionizing exactly, but creating a cooperative where they'd share the app, they would meet, they'd create guidelines for payment. It was all above board. And unlike Handy, which is the um, domestic labor app, which is owned by a conglomerate, this is going to be owned by the laborers themselves. And that seemed very exciting to me. And I mean, it's, these are really small solutions. There aren't that many of these kind of cooperatives. There's one called Beyond Care. There's some other ones that I was studying all in, all in New York. And, you know, but there are probably around the country. There's probably some on the West Coast. And it's also part of a broader movement that you may have heard of called platform cooperativism. Yes. Could you just, for the listeners, kind of define that? And we can spend maybe two or three more minutes talking about it because this is fascinating. Yeah. Okay. So platform cooperativism is, as far as I know, it's a wonderful academic name by a guy named Trevor. He defined it. Uh, He's a scholar. That to define these new cooperative apps that are offering services and goods, but are owned by the sellers. So it's to try to take back some of the ownership. To me, that's the main problem with precarious labor like Uber or Lyft. They don't own shares in Uber, most likely, or Lyft. They don't own the profits when these places go public, or they don't have any stake in it, the workers themselves. You know, they even have to use their own cars, right? So platform cooperatism would be more of like, the Uber driver would also be a teeny, teeny part of the Uber owner, right? Mm-hmm. And to me, that's one solution that's pretty hands-on and something that also people who have certain kinds of politics, we could buy into that. We can try to get our domestic work from co-ops. But we can try to get our child care from co-ops or from these new apps. Uh, you could look probably in your area. There's probably is one. And that's one thing that we can do as consumers. So this is a kind of app unionism. Mm-hmm. That's really yeah, it's, part, it's just a 
small part of alt labor. This is really fascinating. And do you see it? Because what you're talking about, obviously, is not just at the high end of those who are creating software, but those who like are caregivers, right, using Mm -hmm. these apps. And this would give them some sort of standard on pay and everything else, but without, maybe it just, I know you're doing a book on this, so maybe just talk a little bit about how they're able to make these standards standards, rather, you know, without having to go through huge changes in law. The people I spoke to, they were getting a lot of help from nonprofits. So basically the nonprofits that were helping them or the coders that were sort of being paid for by philanthropies. Right. Um, they were being propped up. In a sense, it was kind of like a shadow union. The nonprofits were doing the work that unions used to do. And that's also something else that I've seen. I've seen nonprofit organizing of workers, like domestic workers and restaurant workers. Right, fast food. Yeah, fast food. And that's been very successful. There's no union dues. It's the money is raised by the nonprofit. It's just got a very different structure, right? Mm-hmm. This is all fascinating, and we are sort of running to the end of our time. But Alyssa Court, can I bring you back when your book comes out, and we can spend a good deal of time talking about it? This is something obviously that's really important right now, and I want to congratulate you for writing it. Oh, well, thank you very much. Yeah, of course, I'd love to come back. Okay, great. So I have been speaking with Alyssa Court. She's the editor-in-chief of the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. She's already got four books out, but this new one, Squeezed, will be out. When will it be out? Do you know? In June. Oh, in in June. June. So that gives us plenty of time, but it couldn't be more timely. And what we started out today talking about was the sort of reckoning that has been brought about by all of the outing of sexual harassers and abusers in prominent places in the movie industry, I guess somewhat uh, music industry, and certainly in politics. And it's what we've seen with this moment is that it has crossed borders and classes. And Alyssa has a terrific article in The Guardian that talks about inequality outclassed and looks at what happens to women who are not in any position to challenge their abusers because they're so dependent on their labor that the consequences are too high. I urge you to look at that article in The Guardian. And Alyssa Court, thanks so much for being with us on Jacobin Radio. And good luck on your future writing. Oh, thank you very much, Susie. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Susie Wiseman. This is Jacobin Radio. Thanks to producer and director Alan Minsky and to Jacobin Radio's Micah Utrecht. Bhaskar Sunkara is the founder and editor of Jacobin Magazine. And special thanks to Robert Brenner. And thanks to you for listening. I'm Susie Wiseman.